Have you ever come in on a family member or a friend who's watching a movie and you enter halfway and you say, hey, could we just back this up to the beginning so that I could catch the beginning of this because I don't really know what's going on. And they're like, no, no, you're going to have to go back and watch it on your own because I'm right in the middle of this. And you're like, "Uh, well, okay, I guess I'll watch this. But you know that the plot has already developed substantially. You know that the characters have already been developed. And so you're kind of unsatisfied that you're jumping halfway into the middle of the film. Well, I think sometimes we do this with the Bible. We actually know a lot of the stories of the Bible, but we have difficulty knowing how an individual story fits into the larger film of the Bible, the larger unfolding drama, the narrative of the whole. I'm thankful for our pastors here who take us through entire books of the Bible. So they help us to see those connections as to how one passage fits within the whole thought life of that book. And one such passage that I think we all have a familiarity with is Genesis 22. Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. But what I want us to do this morning is to back up a little bit to the beginning of the Abraham story, which really begins back in Genesis 11. And try to get a better sense of how this story fits within the unfolding narrative so as to appreciate the glory of God and all that he wants us to see in his word, even in Genesis 22 this morning. So in Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel. The inhabitants of the earth have gathered together in one place. They have one language. They build a tower that reaches to the heavens They want to make a name for themselves and they're defiant against the divine command because they say, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And that was precisely what God had commanded. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So they're resisting in arrogance their divine orders. Then we get a genealogy that takes us directly from Shem, the son of Terah, all the way, uh, sorry, the son of Noah, all the way to Terah, the, the father of Nahor, Haran, and Abram. And we call this a vertical genealogy because it just is not concerned about sideline family members. It just wants to trace us directly from Shem to Terah. So Terah has these three boys. One of them, Haran, dies in Ur, which is in Babylon, which is in in Iraq, southern Mesopotamia. And he had a son named Lot. Lot comes with Terah and Abram, and they travel, we learn later, also with Nahor and his wife Milcha, to a place called Haran, not the son Haran, but a place in Turkey called Haran. And Abram marries a woman named Sarai. We're told that Terah dies in Haran, and the narrator is very emphatic at the end of chapter 11, Sarai was barren. He could have just ended there. And she had no children. 
So we have this strong sense that she has no children, but she also doesn't have the capacity to have children either. Then Yahweh, the Lord, interjects into the story in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And we see here he comes to Abram and he communicates both a command and a series of promises. The command is, Abram, you are to leave your nation, your relatives, and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. And that command also includes an embedded promise. That is the gift of a land that God will give to Abram. And then he gives two more promises. The promise of descendants, I will make you into a great nation, and the promise of blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who treats you lightly, I will curse. So we have land, descendants, and blessing. Then Abram continues the journey that Terah had actually initiated toward the land of Canaan, but this time with amplified significance as an act of obedience. He comes into the land of Canaan and he begins worshiping the Lord, setting up altars. Interestingly enough, without sacrifices. But he's worshiping the Lord in obedience in the land of Canaan. Then in chapter 12, as the story unfolds, there's a famine in the land. So this drives Abram down into Egypt. He pretends that his wife is his sister, putting her in danger and actually endangering the whole household of Pharaoh. And yet we see God's blessing covering Abram, protecting his wife, protecting him and his family in spite of his foolish decision. In Genesis 13, they're back in the land of Canaan, and and we see there that the flocks of Abram are multiplying, and he's having conflict with the flocks of Lot, and there's not enough land. Why? Because, again, the Lord is blessing Abram. It's very clear materially what's happening. So Lot chooses to go ominously to the land of Sodom, to the east of the Jordan, Abram stays in what is Canaan proper, the the center land of Canaan. Genesis 14, there's this conflict where Lot is captured by these kings and in the valley of Siddim, Abram comes in and he conquers and he takes back Lot and we have this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who pops out of nowhere, the king of Salem, that is, king of peace and the king of righteousness. And he blesses Abram and he blesses the God of Abram, which then prepares us for Genesis 15, which is once again, God comes to Abram. This time the language is more like the way God would come to a prophet. And he says, I am your shield, your very great reward. So it's been confirmed. There's divine blessing covering the family of Abram. And protection, God himself is protecting this one to whom he's promised these blessings. But Abram says, look, I'm going around childless. You've not begun to fulfill the promise of descendants. And the Lord says, 
One from your own body, that is your own procreative organs, will be your heir. He leads Abram outside to look up into the heavens to see the stars, and he asks him to start numbering the stars. And so you just imagine this kind of stargazing event, and Abram begins to count, and the Lord says, if you can count them. In other words, it's impossible. And the Lord says, so shall your descendants be. Then the narrator tells us, so Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. This is the gospel according to Genesis 15, 6. Then the Lord initiates a covenant, and it's it's very curious because covenants have two active parties, but the Lord puts Abram to sleep as if to say the promise of seed descendants, but especially of land, is completely contingent upon me, Abram. In 400 years, your descendants will come back into this land and finally they will possess it as my inheritance to you. So Abram is trying to figure all of this out. And in Genesis 16, I think what he's doing is he's saying, okay, the Lord said through my own body, will come an heir. But Sarai is still emphatically barren. She can't have children. And so he goes and he's trying to put all this together and he pursues Sarai's handmaiden, Hagar, the Egyptian. So by her, he has a child, Ishmael. But even in this chapter, the way it's brought about with Abram kind of uh, manipulating the circumstances and trying to, to bring about the promise through his own means. It becomes very fuzzy. There's a conflict in the family. Hagar and Ishmael are expelled, but yet the Lord hears them. He meets them in the desert and sees their need. However, when we come to Genesis 17, we see something different happen. We see at the beginning of the chapter, there's the covenant of chapter 15 is now to be sealed by the sign of circumcision. So you're to mark on your body, your procreative organ, the sign that I will be faithful to keep my promise to you and your descendants. And so Abram goes about circumcising the males of his household, him, Ishmael, and other foreign-born males as well. But through this chapter, the Lord makes very clear that although my blessing is also upon Ishmael, he is not the child of the promise. For it is through Sarai, who becomes Sarah, princess, through her, Isaac will be the child of the promise. And this is the name that comes about because Abraham, now called Abraham, father of nations, father of many, he laughs at God's promise. And so every time they say the word of the name of their child, it will remind them that they laughed at the very promise of God, which God himself brought about in his time. And so it's now clear that the promised child comes through Sarah. In Genesis 18, the Lord reaffirms this, but this time it's not Abram who laughs, Abraham, but it's Sarah who laughs. 
And yet again, the Lord says, in about a year's time, I'm going to bring all of this about. Now, they were in their 90s at this point. And so you're imagining these people who think we're well past the age of bearing children, especially for Sarah. And they laugh at the divine promise, and yet God is resolute to bring about the impossible in their lives. At the end of this chapter, there's this exchange because the the wickedness of Sodom has come up before the Lord. And Abraham is concerned because he sees that the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with all of the righteous people living in the city. And so he pleads with the Lord and they get down to, okay, if 10 righteous individuals are living in the city, then I will not destroy Sodom. But Genesis 19, it becomes very clear that they're not even 10 righteous individuals living in the city because the Lord proceeds to destroy Sodom. He rescues Lot. Lot's wife is killed. And then Lot's daughters are also spared. And by their father, they bring about the origins of the people of Moab and Ammon. In Genesis 20, Abraham repeats the episode of Genesis 12. This time it's not in Egypt, but it's in Gerar, which is in the land of Canaan, what would later become the land of the Philistines. And again, he puts his wife's life in danger, jeopardizing her. But again, we see the Lord protecting Abraham and his whole household. Why? Because of Genesis 12. Three, I will bless those who bless you and everyone who treats you lightly, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in Genesis 21, finally, we have the birth of Yitzchak. He laughs, Isaac. And when the child is weaned, Abraham throws a feast in celebration of the gift of this boy. There's more that happens in this chapter, like the affirmation of Ishmael once again, but the expelling of Hagar and Ishmael, and yet God comes to meet them in their loneliness and despair. The chapter ends with another encounter with the same king of Gerar. His name was Abimelech. And again, we see the blessing of Abraham and how the Lord is making his family so um, productive in their flocks and sheep and, and so forth. And so there's another conflict and they make a covenant treaty there so that they will live peacefully together. The chieftain Abimelech and the chieftain Abraham. And finally, we come now to Genesis 22. And the story begins in verse 1. After these things, that is, the things that we just walked through, perhaps going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So again, we have this extremely intimate dialogue between the God of all things and this man, Abraham. And the command is to us profoundly striking. He begins by clarifying who he wants to be offered up as an offering by Abram, by Abraham. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now, this word order is not the exact way of the word order in the original text, which reads, your only son whom you love, Isaac. That helps us a little bit because we know that Abraham had another son, Ishmael, but this is the son whom you love, Isaac. Now, did he not love Ishmael? Well, no, he loved Ishmael, but he threw a feast for Isaac because Isaac was the child of the promise, brought about miraculously in the old age of Abraham and Sarah. And it's through Isaac that I will make you into a great nation and your descendants will be like the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore. So that's why this strong language is used. The very most precious gift that God had given, not brought about by Abraham's manipulation, but brought about by the sovereign power of an almighty God. And that's the son I want you to take to the land of Moriah. Now, this word Moriah, it sounds like the word for place of seeing. And as we'll see later, the story unfolds, this theme of seeing becomes very important. At this point, it's a hill country. We're not exactly sure where it is. Later in the biblical narrative, in the books of Chronicles, we see that this place is identified as the place where David brought, bought the threshing floor from Aruna the Jebusite. And upon that hill, Solomon builds the temple. And not far, or perhaps on the same hill, another son would be offered up as a sacrifice to his father. And offer him there as a burnt offering. Now what in the world is going on? Who is this God that he would demand this slaughter of the precious son of Abraham as a burnt offering? Now Noah offered a burnt offering. And the language that was used there after uh, the flood was that it was a pleasing smell to the Lord. So a burnt offering is an offering that's slaughtered, it's killed, and none of it is eaten by the officiating priest. All of it is consumed and burnt up as a pleasing smell to this God, Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is demanding, not an animal, but the son of Abraham. What was going through Abraham's mind at this time? Well, it's well documented in the ancient world that child sacrifice was practiced. 
We have evidence of this in Mesopotamia. For example, there's a, a cylinder, like a tube, and on the outsides of the cylinder, there's an imprint of a picture. This was rolled out onto wet clay, and then it would show a, a depiction, a picture. On the picture, we have a worshiper leading a child as a sacrifice to the God who is seated on the throne. In Egypt, from the very first dynasty of Egypt, we have a relief, a carving on the wall in Egypt of the stabbing of another human being, again, as an offering to the gods. And then this becomes very prominent, actually, in the law of Moses because the Ammonites had a god. These are a Canaanite people group, not far from where Abraham was, they had a God named Molech, who was a God of fire, and he demanded the child sacrifice of his worshipers. And as a result, he would take that child and he would provide you with more children, fertility, as a response to your obedience. Of course, Moses, God through Moses, explicitly condemns this in Leviticus. If However, the people of the land shut their eyes to that man when he gives some of his children to Molech so that they do not put him to death. I myself will set my face against that man and his clan. But that law had yet to be revealed. There's something that we learn in the Bible, and that is that God is on a journey of progressively, over time, revealing his nature and his demands. At this point, of course, we don't read the mind of God, but we might only speculate for Abraham that he is positioning this God, whom he is following, within this ancient world, this ancient context where the gods, certain gods demanded child sacrifice. And so what does Abraham do? Like Jonah, he runs in the opposite direction to save his boy, right? No. Verses 3 through 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And does this sound like a disobedient worshiper? fleeing from the command of God. Just just listen again to the language. He rose early in the morning. He took his son Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He went to the place of which God had told him. He says to the servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship. How do we understand what is going on morally in this passage, ethically? How can we explain the sacrifice of another human? Well, there's two possibilities that we might take. 
One is that the silence of Abraham is actually a subtle criticism of Abraham. Remember that the characters of the Bible are not sinless. This is a very important point for us to remember as we read biblical stories. The only one who is sinless is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of the living God. No other character in the pages of the Bible is, no other human is sinless. And so, Abraham, back then Abram, he was the one who came to God and and, and in response said, look, I'm going around childless. You've given me nothing to fulfill your promise of descendants in Genesis 15. So he holds God to his word of the promised child. And then in Genesis 18, he has this dialogue about the inhabitants of Sodom. He cares deeply for the righteous living in Sodom. He intercedes on their behalf. This same Abraham is just going to sit by silently. He cares more for the people of Sodom than he does his own precious son. So this could be a subtle indictment of what Abraham at this point should have at least voiced a response to God, humbly and yet nevertheless in prayer. The second possibility, which is, to be honest, the one that I'm more inclined to see, is that the narrator here, the storyteller, is really presenting Abraham as walking in complete submission to God's will. Now, We cannot enter into the mind of Abraham. But it's been suggested in this reading that Abraham sets aside for the time his responsibility as a good father to love and never harm his son. And he suspends, he sets aside that responsibility to obey the call of of a sovereign and mysterious God that he does not yet understand. Now, we have the whole canon of the Bible. All of the scriptures are before us. God will never command us to go and kill or to sin in any way. But just like Abraham, God will command us to take risks and to do things that we absolutely do not understand. He's going to press us into the corner and ask us to obey him even when we're confused about what he is doing in the process. Now, in verse 1 of this story, we learn that God tested Abraham. It seems now as the story is unfolding that Abraham does not know that God is explicitly testing him. Maybe he figured this out. By the end of the story, it seems that he has this knowledge. But at this point, he does not know. He's simply moving forward in obedience. And isn't it like our God that we also do not know when God is moving in our lives to test our hearts, to see if our loyalty to him will be superior 
to any good gift that he has given to us. And we may not know that God is testing us in those moments, but we can be confident that he is a God who tests his people. As Proverbs 17, 3 says, the melting pot is for fern. It, the, the melting pot is for silver. The furnace is for gold. But the Lord tests hearts. So in complete submission to this God whom he does not yet understand, the story continues, verses 6 through 8. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, we don't know how old Isaac is. We know he was weaned from chapter 21. And here we see that he's old enough to carry a a bundle of sticks on his back for the burnt offering. We also see that he's able to think critically for himself. He sees the fire. He sees the wood. By the way, the fire would have been in kind of a fire pan, maybe already kindled, and that's why it's called a fire at this point. And he sees these elements, but he notices the main element is missing, the lamb for the burnt offering. What is going through Isaac's mind? Now, kids know a lot more than we think they know. They can put things together, and it's quite likely that he also knew about child sacrifice in Canaan. But whatever's going through his mind, he asks this curious question to which Abraham provides a far more curious response. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Where does he get this idea? Maybe it was divinely revealed. We don't have that knowledge of where Abraham comes up with this. It's not a concept in the ancient world outside of the Bible. I've looked at the writings and I have yet to find a place where a God provides a sacrifice to his worshiper to offer back to the God. We do have gods presenting burnt offerings to another God, but we don't have this God providing the sacrifice to worship himself. But there's something else that's very curious about this. Now, this is what we call a direct address. My son. So Abraham is speaking directly to his son. But notice my son is not at the beginning. It's at the end. And so this could also be, sorry to use this this word, but apposition, which simply means it comes right after the word burnt offering. And it explains the burnt offering. Let me read it that way. 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering that is my son. Now, did Isaac pick up on this subtle hint of a possibility? We don't know. But in any case, twice the storyteller tells us that they went, both of them, together. They're in unison. They're moving toward this burnt offering with all of the ambiguity, with all of the mystery of what's going to happen and unfold ahead. Later, we learn from the author of Hebrews that Abram was putting this together and he believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Yet, that doesn't take away the sting of what would happen because that also requires that Abraham would have to kill his son, put him to death, and then God would raise him to life as the son of the promise. So the story continues in verses 9 through 12. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Let me pause there and say, the early Jewish readers of this, the ones that translated the Bible into Aramaic, which Jesus and others would have at times used as their Bible, some of those early translations they actually add into this text, so it's a later explanation, um, that Isaac was a willing sacrifice. However, look at the language here. Abram, Abraham built the altar, he laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar. Now, Maybe Isaac was willing initially, but why would he have to be bound? Well, there's a possibility that at the last second, he would become an unwilling sacrifice and flip off the altar and try to escape and save his life. No, rather, Abraham binds him on the altar and lays him on uh, the altar. But thanks be to God, there will arise and there has arisen a second Isaac. But the second Isaac goes to his death, not unknowingly and not unwillingly. Rather, he lays his own life down for his sheep. As he teaches his disciples, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own power. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So, just as the Lord called to Abraham once at the beginning of the story, here he calls twice 
emphatically stopping Abraham from plunging the knife into his boy. And now it becomes clear what the Lord was after all all along. He wasn't after a, a human sacrifice. Rather, he was after the loyalty of Abraham's heart. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So the test of Abraham is not a test of knowledge. It's not a test of skill. It's a test of loyalty. Will Abraham love God more than the precious gifts that God has given? And this becomes a paradigm for all of us. What about us? Will we love God more than the good things he's given? Can we truly say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is no one on the earth that I desire besides you. And it's for this reason that later in the scriptures, Abraham is called a friend of God. But the story doesn't end there. In Genesis 22, verses 13 and 14, the storyteller tells us, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Just as Abraham lifted up his eyes to the heavens to number the stars, here he lifts up his eyes to see a ram caught by his horns in the bush. And he interprets this ram immediately as God's gift to him. As God's provision of the animal for the burnt offering in place of his son. And the language that's used here, not only does Abraham lift his eyes, he sees, but also in verse 14, the actual language is the Lord will see or the Lord sees On the mount of the Lord, it will be seen. Now, this comes into many of our translations as provided, and and we understand why, but the initial meaning is the Lord sees Abraham's need, and he acts in grace to meet that need. This is the gospel according to Abraham in Genesis 22. Thanks be to God, not only is there a second Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ, There's also a second ram. For God made him, the son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you experienced God's gift of a sacrifice in your place? Do you know that you are right now satisfying to God and no longer under his wrath because you've received his 
precious gift of his son? Believe him today. Trust him today. Receive the second ram. The story finishes with the angel of the Lord again coming to Abraham in verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Did you hear the echo from Genesis 12? What do we have here? We have land, shall possess the gate of your enemies. We have descendants, multiply your offspring. And we have blessing, I will surely bless you. So, is this because Abraham obeyed that God will bless him and fulfill his promises? Well, Verses 16 and 18, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, verse 18, because you have obeyed my voice, yes, in one mysterious sense, it is. But to simply isolate these words and rip them out of the context, it's like jumping into a movie halfway through and trying to read into these words the full frame of the film. No, no, we have to go back and remember that God promised land descendants and blessing and he, putting Abraham to sleep, declared he would be faithful to fulfill his promises. And Abraham believed in God's promise and received the gift of acceptance of righteousness. So there's promises first There's righteousness by faith, a relationship intact. Second, then there's the divine test of all tests to which Abraham obeys and finally the confirmation of blessing. So what does this all mean for us? Where do we go from here? What if all of life is a test? I mean, just think about the Garden of Eden just for a moment here. You have the Lord God placing the tree of life right next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both are placed in the center of the garden. Every day when the first humans, Adam and Eve, had to eat from the tree of life, they would have seen the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They certainly knew about it. What else could this be? but a test, a test of the loyalty of their hearts. Again, Proverbs 17, 3, the melting pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. It is in the DNA of the maker of all things to test the loyalty of those made in his image. What if all of life is a test? And Genesis 22 just gives us a snapshot of what we also experience throughout our lives. But what if 
The test is not a test of knowledge or of skill, but of the loyalty of your heart. Do you love God more than the good things he gives you? But what if to pass this test, you don't need to try harder, struggle more, pray more, do more in your own power, but rather you need to receive another gift from the God who is testing you. For you see, just as Abraham received righteousness by faith, he also received a ram caught in a thicket as a substitute sacrifice so that he might be acceptable to God and pleasing to God. Both of those were gifts from God that enabled Abraham to live a life of loyalty. Now, here's the connection for us. We don't love God by doing. We love God by receiving a second gift, a gift that he has freely given us in the person of his son. And then the son gives us another gift called the Holy Spirit. John puts it this way in his letter in 1 John 1.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, In other words, not that we in our own power pass the divine test of loyalty to God. No, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul said it this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Then, then you will pass the test of life, living a life of loyalty to God, faithfulness to him, when you receive that which he has freely given you in the grace of the second Isaac, the second ram, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, when you pass life's test, you will become a son or daughter of Abraham by faith in the God of Abraham.